Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our editor Vivian Kelly. Hello. Our news editor Paul Woolbank. Hello there. And our senior media reporter Zoe Samios. Hello. Plus, coming up later, we'll be chatting to OND CEO Amy Buchanan about the problem with pitching. So I've had a couple that I would have walked away from because I'm done and exhausted and they've gone, <laughs> no, we really want to do the same, so let us go. The age diversity debate. Definitely from a media point of view, you don't see that many people over 45, 50. And straight talking on transparency. You're a business, we're a business. You pay us for a service and you get what you pay for. But first, the week's topics. The nine Fairfax merger passes major hurdle. Icon wins its big court case. Sky News dumps Ross Cameron. And cricket is coming. So this week, the ACCC has approved the nine Fairfax merger. Now they just need the shareholders to agree. And the biggest deal in the history of Australian media is done. Zoe, it... It would have been a big surprise, wouldn't it, if the ACCC hadn't uh, given the... And I don't know if we can describe it as green light, because they said they're not going to object, which seems like a bit of a double negative. Yeah, I think that's the official or the legal way that they're supposed to uh, make a decision on any merger. So, yeah, they've said they've not objected, but it isn't really a surprise. When you talk to anyone in the industry, they said they would be shocked. And that comes down to the decision made last year around changes to the laws, the media reform laws, uh, which occurred, I think, in October last year. So if it didn't go through, it would basically contradict everything that the government had been working on for the previous in the previous 12 months. So presumably for the ACCC, what we're talking about is their remit isn't so much, okay, and I'll get you to talk us through what the actual specific media rules were in a moment. It's does it overall lessen um, competition in the market in a particularly big way. Exactly. And when you look into the report and Rod Sims's comments, he did say that there could be a bit of uh, or a reduction of competition, but it wouldn't substantially lessen, lessen competition in breach of any Australian competition and consumer law. So what were the rules that changed that effectively made this happen? Well, the major rule that changed, there are a lot of rules that changed, but the major rule was the repeal of the two out of three rule and the 75 percent audience reach media ownership rules so what it means is that there's no longer a law which prevents a person or a company from being in control of more than two commercial radio television or newspapers in a same license area and if we talk about the 75 percent audience reach rule there's no rule anymore that prevents a person from being in a position to control commercial tv licenses whose combined license area populations exceed 75% of the population in Australia. So what it means is that these, without these rules, ultimately a lot of different companies can join together provided it doesn't substantially lessen, lessen competition. And when we talk online news, obviously, you know, there's a lot of talk about digital competition when it comes to Google and Facebook, the, the arguably the duopoly. What about the, on, the new online players? Well, Rob Sims, the... ACCC chairman did mention that there was some gro- or some more competition with the rise of media websites like The Guardian, The New Daily, BuzzFeed, Crikey and The Daily Mail. Obviously those different publications have been in market for some time but his argument was while there are substantially less I guess print 
publishers, there are substantially more digital publishers that are competing against the likes of a nine.com.au or the sydneymorningherald.com.au. And we should keep in mind with the ACCC's rulings on these things, they have a terrible track record of accurately predicting how competition is going to be lessened. And across industries, they've made rulings on supermarkets. Uh, Telco has probably been the most spectacular. In fact, a lot of people will blame the mess that the NBN is in, partly on the ACCC's rulings in its early days. Uh, the, the, the ACCC really has a poor record of this. And is it when it blocks things it shouldn't block or fails to block things it should block? More the latter, Tim, that um, they wave through these things and say it won't really lessen competition or won't have much of an impact on the marketplace. And, of course, the monopolist or oligopolist uh, then goes rampant. So are you saying that they should block this one? I'm not saying they should, but uh, just pointing out that the ACCC's track record is very, very poor on this. I think Zoe's earlier point stands though in that if they had blocked it there would have been such an uproar that the government spent so much time money and energy in reforming the media ownership laws and then if the ACCC is only going to block it that would set a precedent of blocking other proposed mergers would-be mergers upcoming mergers and therefore everything they went through to transform the landscape would be totally redundant if everything is going to be blocked. Oh, for sure. And there's that political side of it too, that uh, the bureaucrat that uh, goes against the government's wishes on this is probably going to end up with the Dubbo Land Protections Board or something. Exactly. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with Dubbo. <laughs> um, the other thing that I would add is off the back of this week's decision uh, is that should the shareholder approval of Fairfax and Nine go ahead and court approval as well, they're they're hoping to start trading as a joint company on December 10 this year. You know, that's almost a month from now and that is a very quick process given it was just in at the end of July that the first announcement that they would merge has been made and they're two massive businesses with a lot of different parts to see that all come to a head by December is it really it's quite quick. Do you think some of the urgency around that is we, we have seen a sort of general decline in both of the share prices so there's an urgency before shareholders get cold feet about it? I mean potentially although when they first announced it and I think the date was July 26 they did say that it would be concluded by December so it's in line with everything that they've said maybe the fact that there is pressure from shareholders is making making sure that they stick to the timeline but they've always had that timeline in place. And nine CEO Hugh Marks, who will be the CEO of the new company, has already started to flag the changes that will come in December, saying there will be some changes to leadership, locations, corporate teams and systems as we proceed to bring these two great organisations together. So, so by, by leadership, we mean nine will basically lead it. I by location, <laughs> we mean it will basically be at nine. Correct. <laughs> Culture? Uh, well, corporate teams and systems seems to be a euphemism for Nine. job cuts <laughs> to me. And they did flag job cuts a, f- uh, a couple of months back or maybe it was a month ago in sales as well or synergies, which is uh, both Fairfax and Nine's favourite word at the moment. Hey, question without notice. This is just based on a, a conversation um, I had with somebody who's an industry watcher this week um, to this point on sales teams. They were saying that... Crossing their radar is just a huge number of resumes at the moment. Now, we often talk about the, the, the um, I think the phrase we currently use is executives looking for a job whiteboard we have in our, our office. Unemployed execs. <laughs> I think I changed it to say there was the ones that are actively looking and the ones that are probably not going to 
beat looking and that, anymore. And that is at the top level. But this person was saying to me, you've got the same thing of people who, you know, were, 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 were commanding these quite big salaries when the market was a lot more competitive, particularly people in sort of agencies or tech side who, you know, were maybe able to argue, you know, that a role was, you know, demanded a salary of 200,000 or something, who were now showing willingness to accept jobs at half that amount because there just aren't the jobs there. Are we quietly having a media recession that nobody's noticed? I think we've discussed this internally before in terms of the number of job ads that are circulating in the media, marketing and advertising space. Anecdotally, they really do seem to be on the decline. And I just think that from evidence that I've seen out in the market as well, it is taking people such a long time to get a job and the glory days of easily jumping between roles definitely doesn't seem to be happening anymore. Yeah, I definitely agree with Viv's point. I was on the phone to an exec this week who was saying, oh, look, we're getting so many resumes. There's so much choice at the moment, but there's not enough jobs. And you think about, and yes, there is the Nine and Fairfax merger, which was past its hurdle this week but you also think about cosmopolitan getting axed you know half post joint venture the scale back there there are so many talented people in the mix that's only going to grow and the jobs just aren't there so i i don't know what they're going to be able to do be it a journalist or a salesperson because sales you can kind of mix out of media but if your sole job is media there's a huge challenge coming for you and it's only going to get more difficult with these mergers. And on the broader front there, it's interesting because the nine Fairfax uh, statements of the stock exchange last month flagged this, that there was a softening media spend as well. Um, nine said that they'd held theirs up by taking more market share, which we discussed on a previous pods, podcast. But yes, definitely there seems to be a recession on. And the other interesting thing, um, certainly in the conversation I had was, you know, I was asking that question, does it mean that media agencies will shrink in size? And their argument is that a part of the business model is it's it's a recharging of headcount business model to clients, which keeps it in. But it also means that agencies are massively incentivised if they need to cut costs by uh, to pay less, have less experienced people who come in cheaper. Which is a really big worry. I know I've talked a lot about education piece within media agencies in various capacities, measurement's been one of the ones that I've been really passionate about but the less experience the more problems will arise and you know media agencies are under huge pressures at the moment anyway take out all of the stuff that's happening outside of that all of the outdoor mergers publishing mergers closures and there's less spend around but I do think that cutting costs and hiring people with much less experience there's advantages to getting new people in or young people in but there's also a huge disadvantage if you don't have people who can teach and this is something when we chat to uh amy buchanan from omd a little bit later in this uh in this umbrella cast we'll uh, we'll touch upon some more next the court case that defines the duties of ad agencies So this week kicked off with Icon Communications winning a landmark test case against its former client, hair care brand Advangen. Now, Icon had originally sued Advangen for missed payments, uh, to which the client responded with a counterclaim in court, stating that Icon had, in quotes, failed to meet the standard in its marketing campaign on behalf of the brand. Now, this case may well have been, we certainly believe it is, the first time that a client has taken its agency to court over what it perceives as the failure of a marketing campaign, a good test of what those responsibilities are. Um, Viv, so what do we now understand better as a result of this case? Well, this case was 
widely regarded as a test case for agency and client relationships and the obligations on either side and the standards that each company can hold the other one to. In winning this case, Icon CEO Leslie Edwards said that it was a test case that could have implications for how agency-client relationships work in the future because the brand was arguing that not only did Icon create a campaign that didn't work there were all sorts of other claims around the media buying side as well and targeting the incorrect demographic being ineffective failing to deliver failing to stitch together an integrated campaign so had the hair care brand been successful it really would have set a precedent for brands to start taking their agencies to court and if i understand it rightly really the 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 judgment of the court was almost buyer beware um, you know, your agency will tell you this, but you, you know, in the end, if you sign off on it, you're signing off on it. It's a bit different to the level of professionalism that you'd expect, for instance, from a doctor or a lawyer, that they, they have an extra level of duty of care. Is that is that how you understand yeah, it? Yeah, so Justice Michael Ball basically said that ad effectiveness is a matter of subjective opinion. Now, I don't think you'd hear that language bandied around if we were talking about a doctor's obligations. Now, obviously, we're not saving lives, and I'm glad that doctors are held to a higher standard than we in Adland are. But this very well could have been a test of how professional Adland is and how professional agencies have to be. Jane Caro was a witness who was called upon by the brand. Former agency person. Yes, to, to talk about the ads ineffectiveness and talk about why it failed as a creative campaign and why it failed to generate sales. Now, Justice Ball sort of hit back and said that Jane Caro failed to point to any standard or research by which it is possible to measure or determine whether TVCs sufficiently communicate a message. So Adland doesn't have these standards. So effectively, Justice Michael Ball was saying, well, you can't prove it was or it wasn't effective and you can't prove that it is, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back because you're all just talking about creativity and the light and fluffy and there's nothing rigid that we can say this is where they failed. Uh, and I get that. I do. I honestly do get that. Um, but at the same time, no matter how you measure it or try to measure it, call it science, call it something else, a good piece, and let's be subjective, a good piece of creative, and we're subjective using the word good, backed with a decent investment in the marketing campaign, so getting it on TV, getting it in front of people, all those things that Byron Sharp talks about, delivers results. You know, sort of there's plenty of evidence of that. So I wonder whether the advertising industry hasn't been done in many favours in this, in that it seems so fluffy and magic pixie dust, yet there is a bit of science there somewhere. I guess that's almost a different issue, though, in that perhaps we could all agree that the ad was bad, again, subjective, but even if we just all agree on the definition of bad and that this ad is bad. And this was an ad that featured somebody standing on a, on a windswept hilltop with her hair yes, flying so, in so the wind. It, it sort of failed to communicate that it was about sort of hair thinning and, and overcoming that problem. It looked more like a standard shampoo commercial or a beauty product commercial, but... 
even if we can just all agree that the creative was bad, this wasn't about that. This wasn't testing if the ad was bad. This was testing where the obligation lies. And in this case, it was that the client, having agreed to the ad going to air, had to pay for it. Yes, and the client had signed off on the final TVC, which Justice Michael Ball pointed to. He said, you know, you signed off on it, so you agreed to it, you were on board with it. Therefore, the failure could be yours as well, and and the failure could be further down the line. So... You know, if you hate an ad, perhaps the learning here is don't sign off on it. This is the thing, isn't it? You know, I'm sure there are many things that make me a bad client. But one of them is there's something about a really great client who buys the right campaigns off their agency. When the agency presents the big idea and they love it and they're so enthused and they're all in the room and they're showing the boards... um, and they're in sell, sell, sell mode to the client to sign off on the campaign. Knowing the difference between a campaign that's going to work and a campaign that's indulgent for the agency or they want to do it to win awards rather than to sell stuff or whatever it is, that feels like one of the single tests of what a good client looks like. Are you saying that Advangen was a bad client here? Well, I think from the point of view of Advangen being a a client that didn't pay its bills, that makes it a very bad client. Yes, well, Advangen has now been ordered to pay Icon $939,000 plus interest. You also can't uh, help but think, reading through the case, that uh, had this not been signed off and say they'd been um, arguing about how much was payable and so on, that probably would have been a different test of the case altogether. But uh, the fact that the ad had gone to wear and had been signed off and the client was coming back after the fact was probably another reason why the judge took a dim view on this. Yeah, that's a really important point, why it's important to have internal account management. Yeah, Mm. Justice Michael Ball did point to the ineffectiveness and how that only became evident in hindsight, as you mentioned, Paul. So that formed part of his judgment in that, we only realised after the fact this wasn't going to work. So again, it, it's not like Icon deliberately created an ineffective campaign. They did what they did, everyone agreed, and then it didn't work. So it's almost like you can't come after your agency after the fact. Next, Outsiders grows a little bit smaller. So, Sky News has dumped Outsiders host Ross Cameron... Uh, which, whenever anything like this happens, always sets our comment thread alight. Uh, Here's what uh, finally caused uh, Ross Cameron to walk the plank. Uh, If you go to the uh, Disneyland in Shanghai on any typical morning of the week, you'll see 20,000 black-haired, slanty-eyed, yellow-skinned Chinese desperate to get into Disneyland. So, Paul, um, Outsiders has got a hell of a history, hasn't it? It really does. I and mean, this is a show that, um, first of all... Went a little to show, by the way. A little show. Hardly anyone watches. That's right, which uh, you've been gleefully pointing out since it first went to air. Uh, yeah, Mark Latham, Ross Cameron and Rowan Dean um, as the three hosts of it originally. Mark immediately came out punching, and not, le- not least against um, other people uh, in the media and so on, but also people within Sky News, which uh, started ruffling um, a lot of people internally in Sky News. Yes, I think his very first two words he used on the show were trigger warning, <laughs> yes. um, which, uh, although used ironically, proved to be true. And triggering his own uh, fellow hosts at Sky News as well. And yes, then... he got himself into legal trouble with Christina Cornelia, if I remember right. That's right who was at the time another presenter. Yeah, and uh, there was some other... um, I'm just 
breaking my memory to remember who were the other uh, Sky News hosts, but uh, then that went on to the ABC. Yes, I think he took a crack at, I can't remember if he was still a host, but Peter Van Onselen. That's right, yes. um, Definitely was another target, PVO. And so um, he uh, he was moved on after making some fairly homophobic remarks about a schoolboy of all things, and uh, so that was the end of Mark. Then when the show came back after a few weeks' suspension, uh, uh, Rowan and um, Ross continued along. And, As a uh, doubleheader. And um, again uh, got into trouble over uh, Senator um, David Lionhelm's uh, comments, which are trundling through the courts at the moment as well. That was the comments about Sarah Hanson-Young. That's right, and uh, that triggered a whole bunch of outrage, another trigger warning. And now um, in the last uh, two weeks, uh, we've had um, Ross Cameron uh, fired after making comments, very odd comments, I've got to say, about Chinese at Disneyland. Yeah, look, and the one thing I would say is, obviously there was the, the, the clip that we heard. Um, very few people, because it's been taken down, have heard the context in which it was said. And I have heard supporters of Ross Cameron make the point that when you heard it in context, he was talking about the irony and the assumptions about the Chinese population, and he was almost using those words um, to make the opposite point that appeared there. But clearly, that's one of the dangerous things in a live broadcast. And really interesting with that was that um, Paul Whitaker, the boss at Sky News, um, uh, dumped him pretty well immediately. So uh, the context probably didn't matter in terms of the management. Uh, and, and let's remember, this is a show that, that on its weeknights, it's going out just before midnight. You know, when they when they got moved there, I, I, I tried to find the clip on YouTube, unfortunately, at the time, and I wasn't able to. There was, there was a British sitcom um, with Harry Enfield where they had two uh, radio DJs who eventually got moved to the, the graveyard slot of the show called Mumbling Around Midnight. Um, and that was kind of uh, kind of my first thought when I saw them sort of relegated to that stop. But to get yourself in that level of trouble so late at night. Mm. And we have had in our commenters that uh, a lot of their viewers are really deeply unhappy about being so late because obviously they've uh, had their cup of tea or warm milk and gone to bed by that time. <laughs> Rocking and a popping and a televisioning with smashing a nice ear on Channel 4. <laughs> What the boffins of Channel 4 have come up with is a great idea of putting the older sort of shows that nobody watched the first time round on all through the night where even less people are going to watch them. And that's a great idea, isn't it, mate? It certainly is, mate. <laughs> and finally this week we got the first look at what value Foxtel will get out of its cricket rights while Seven started to build anticipation around its own coverage. Hold on, I'm coming. Hold on, I'm coming. Hold on, I'm coming. Hold on, I'm coming. The cricket is coming to seven. So Zoe, let's let's start with Seven's promo. What about Seven's promo, Tim? Well, this is the funny <laughs> thing, and, and Viv's going to have to help me on this. Uh, for some reason... You and Viv think that this clip is the funniest thing in the whole world ever. I, I don't think it's the funniest thing in the whole world ever. I, just, I didn't say that. I just you chuckled away, and I just thought, well, look, hey, that's a you know, that's a great Sam and Dave song. Every you know, building the anticipation. Hold on, I'm coming. It's you know, it's a famous classic song, and they're trying to build anticipation about cricket coming. Yeah. It is a famous song, but 
the talent on the screen for this ad aren't jovially singing along to said song, the potential issue and and the issue that Zoe and I noticed and felt uncomfortable around, and look, there's just no way to put this delicately, is the male talent standing awkwardly, staring down the barrel of the lens, saying, hold on, I'm coming. There's obvious implications there, I would argue, and then any female talent that appears on the screen doesn't say those words so it's not really the song it's it's just the awkward sexual implications and I can't see how nobody noticed that when this ad was being made definitely not the first time I watched it without you 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 just have to look at it once and you can see okay there's hold on I'm coming okay hold on I'm coming and it got it keeps going so I I honestly don't see how anyone creating that promo would have missed that you know if they were singing as Viv said if if they were singing and you know dancing to that original song it probably wouldn't seem or have that same tone but it just felt a little bit icky to be honest and also it's meant to be about the fact that cricket is coming cricket is about to start on seven so I don't know that we need these individual males awkwardly saying i'm coming it's not about you it's about the cricket i, I suspect they probably <laughs> wished they didn't have to do it themselves I'm yes guessing. i have to admit that uh, i was editing the day that that story went up and i when i saw that in our news list i approached the story with a lot of trepidation and i wasn't disappointed well over on foxtail we saw the uh, the first one day international um, which uh, averaged for one of the innings... Well, Zoe, explain the maths, how we got to the average. Um, well, the average... So every morning we get uh, Tam's results. We don't get every single breakdown of audience uh, for a number of different reasons, but what we do get is the subscription TV numbers. So what they're looking at is an average audience over a, a certain period of time. It was divided into two sessions. I think the first number or the bigger number was something around the $235,000 metro dollar 235,000 metro viewer mark while the other number was slightly below 200,000 at about a 190,000 metro viewers once everyone realized Australia didn't stand a chance because they were playing so badly yeah exactly exactly so when you add those two I mean basic maths my favorite subject you get an average of 205,000 across uh, the two sessions of the one day international look People, and I think there was a commenter in our thread saying, well, is that is that a good number? For Foxtel, it's a great number, but doesn't that say a lot about Foxtel when, you know, you look at Oztam's overnight preliminary ratings for the commercial free-to-air television stations and something like The Block is averaging a 1.2 million Metro viewer. And I suppose it's also worth noting that... Um it was interesting seeing on social media that despite all the coverage of, you know, the blockbuster deal involving Foxtel and Seven for the cricket, it came as a shock to a lot of people that actually it was behind a paywall. I knew that that was going to happen. The problem, and I, when, when everyone talks about these sports rights, they go, okay, fair enough, you don't get digital rights, you don't get certain matches. Consumers do not care why you don't get things. They don't care that you negotiated with Cricket Australia and Cricket Australia gave the one-day internationals to Foxtel as it has, which means that nothing is on Channel 7 or on the free-to-air networks for the one-day international coverage. What they care about is seeing it. They can't afford to watch Foxtel or pay for Foxtel just to be able to watch their cricket. They want that basic... Uh, you know they want to be able to watch whatever cricket match they've watched which they've done for a number of years on free to air now it's something like a 68 dollars a month package for sport i'm sorry i can't afford that 
And I'm probably, I'm, I'm not the demographic, but I doubt, you know, if they're looking for male skew, a lot of young men would want to pay that much a month just to watch their cricket. And what Zoe said there is really interesting thing, I think, about the Australian sports viewer is that in the UK and in the US, the consumer's been trained to um, accept subscription TV, paid TV, uh, whereas here in Australia, because we've had the anti-siphoning rule, this has never been really a thing until now. And and Australians really haven't... Because this is a classic news corporation, Rupert Murdoch strategy, English Premier League and that sort of thing, of putting sport behind a prim, uh, behind a paywall and uh, dr- driving subscriptions that way. The other thing that I would add, and, and it's more closely aligned to the point about audiences, if you did... I did a look back and last season's Perth One Day International against England, which was on Channel 9, had an average audience of 1.377 million. So that's almost seven times the amount of Foxtel. Now, while Foxtel has said that advertisers are more pleased with the offering that they've got on the new channel, Fox Cricket, what are you trying to get out of this? Because if you've got no viewers watching, it doesn't matter what the kind of deals you're doing or what kind of integration you're doing. If no one's watching it, then who are the advertisers targeting? That's what it comes down to. Well, we could ask Cricket Australia, but most of them got sacked this week, so they are left to (laughs) ask anyway. Coming up next, our agency's writer Abigail Dawson and our deputy editor Josie Tutty will be joined by OMD CEO Amy Buchanan. And joining us now on the Mumbrella cast, we have Amy Buchanan here in the studio, CEO at media agency OMD Australia, which is part of the global OMD network. Amy has been at OMD for the past seven years and has been leading the company for the past two. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. And also here with me, we have senior agencies reporter Abigail Dawson. Hello. So just to kick things off, Amy, OMD Australia is obviously a very successful media agency. Start with the compliment. It's always good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) With clients including Coles, Qantas, Target, McDonald's, Simplot. You've, You've had a very good year. What do you think separates OMD from all the other media agencies in Australia? Good question. I think there's a few elements. The first is we've taken a very long-term view of both structure and our approach to clients, the way we service them, the way we're remunerated. And we've been very much about building a sustainable business that will be um, successful now, but that will be able to maintain that rhythm. I think we've got an incredible strength Um, of team so if I look at the structures that we've put in place in Melbourne and the depth of capability in Brisbane and Sydney in each office we're really um, the leaders of those offices are very very deeply supported by a really capable bench which enables growth I think if you if you're very narrow in those structures it's hard to continue to grow because it, it ultimately falls to one or two people um, and then I think we've really pushed um, transparency in our enumeration and structures and I think that's happened at quite a pivotal time in the landscape uh, and has enabled us to have conversations with clients that are potentially different to the conversations we would be having if we hadn't have taken that longer term view on our RAM models and the way that we work with fully disclosed programmatic solutions and the likes. It's interesting that you mentioned transparency because obviously that's been a huge issue for the past two years really. Um, But how do you see the issue, I suppose, resolving on a wider level? Do you think media agencies need to move to an outcomes-based remuneration model, which sort of relies more on return on investment from the perspective of brand perception and also sales? I think that's kind of the 
the outcomes and and potentially a way that you're measured I think it starts a lot further upstream from that and it starts with a conversation with the client that's you're a business we're a business you pay us for a service and you get what you pay for and I think for too long we've allowed that conversation to be murky and and it comes from a history of being a commission-based business where the tangibility of what you earn wasn't relating back to what you were delivering necessarily. Uh, our philosophy and, and something I'm really passionate about is you pay for what you get and it's not that complicated. If you want more of it, you pay more. And I find 99% of the time that conversation is a very balanced and um, welcomed conversation by clients. I think it's just... You've got to have the conversation. And then to your point, it's what impact are you having on the business and and are you earning that remuneration? But I think it's got to start with you're paying us for a service. And I think if, if, you, if you're not having that conversation, it's, it's where the pain sort of starts. The transparency debate is probably no more murkier anywhere than programmatic. There's been a lot of talk about transparency within this area and Accenture actually recently bought its programmatic in-house. Do you think this is a symptom of a lack of trust in this area and and what can the industry do to address it in programmatic specifically? There's a lot of questions in that question. (laughs) If I break it down, is there a lack of Mm. trust and transparency in programmatic? Programmatic, Yes. Um, I think you'd have to have been hiding under a rock to (laughs) say anything different. I think that comes back to the conversation where clients haven't been paying for the service they've been getting and agencies have looked at ways to make money. That's a, it's, it's a short-term view. I think our view's very much been um, uh, let's have a – again, let's have that conversation and uh, we work to fully disclose models on every single client in the agency programmatically across the country and it's something we've – proud of but we've also taken a long-term view we've lost money probably comparative to other agencies who've uh, worked in non-disclosed models or non-transparent models so yes there's an issue we have to address it again to be about the service you're getting the Accenture I don't know whether that's because of the issue or because of the opportunity Mm -hmm. Um, and it's probably a bit of both they've seen an opportunity for a reputable business to have a position in market um, it's it it's a conflict of interest, I would argue, um, especially in a business that is auditing us on a lot of levels and have, has as, access to a lot of data. And you can argue there's a separation of those divisions, but we could argue the same, and we wouldn't be allowed to mark our own homework. So, um, I think that again comes down to a client conversation, and it's whether the client's comfortable with that information existing in two pillars within the, within the Accenture business. So we've sort of spoken about transparency there, which is, I suppose, one of the key issues that I can identify in the media industry right now, sort of along with the shift in traditional values when it comes to legacy relationships with clients and also talent. How are you finding the talent pool at the moment and and how are you sort of competing now as well with publishers in terms of talent sort of not Mm. just looking within media agencies anymore? Yeah, it's definitely one of the hardest parts of the business is Mm. that there's not enough people to do the jobs that exist and there's a constant expansion of the people you're competing against for that talent. Uh, our approach, and I think OMD for a long, long time, way before my time even, has been known for its culture. Like it's, mm. 
it's actually quite an incredible place to work. It's very much, sometimes so much about the people that you're like, okay, guys, we are still running a business, Um, which is that sort of tension between performance and culture that we spend a lot of time trying to find that right balance. Uh, We have, I mean, we do a lot in the training and development space. We do a lot in in the cultural space. We do a lot in the diversity space. Uh, And I think as far as a place to work, we're, we're in a good place. I think the... The, I think the tension probably becomes you always lose people. The question is whether they leave and regret it and want to come back. And I think what we see, we, I mean, we have a term within the business called OMD boomerangers and it's because so many of our senior team have <laughs> worked there, gone away and come back and they're affectionately known as OMD <laughs> boomerangers, which gives me a sense that the grass isn't greener. You'll often leave for a little bit more money and I think it talks again, it's probably the big tension around transparency is if you're only earning the money you say you're earning, your ability to pay people probably isn't what it is if you're earning Mm. a lot of money in other ways, which is probably actually our biggest tension is uh, if you've lent on the side of transparency, your remuneration structures are what they are. So we often find we'll lose people for a little bit of money. Um, and that's been around since I was a media assistant. You know, you get off at five, ten grand to go across the road. Um, but the, we, what we find is we often get a call. Not always, but we often will get a call going, you know what, this wasn't the right decision or I'm regretting that or I've done two years and I'm ready to come back. Um, but, yeah, we get a lot of people back. I think it's quite interesting when you compare um, the creative side of agency land and the media side of things in terms of, the superstar creative it's almost like um a lot of people know that role exists because they see a cool ad and they're like oh who made that and it, it's almost like the creatives become almost celebrities within Adland. it doesn't quite feel like that's the case within media agencies do, do you think we're going to ever see the return of the superstar strategist oh, i thought that still existed <laughs> i feel Maybe like I'm it being exists harsh. in my business <laughs> i don't know if it's I think there's a lot more inter-reliance on the capability that people bring in a media agency. I haven't worked in a creative agency, so I can't comment on that. But even if you have a rock star strategist, if you don't have someone to execute and implement that and bring that strategy to life, it's kind of irrelevant. So I think there is a lot more um, respect and reliance between the departments and divisions in a media agency that know you can have the best idea in the world, but if... If the implementation or the client service team can't help me sell it in, if the trading team can't get the deal across the line to enable it to happen, it's kind of irrelevant. So maybe it's about that, that Mm. maybe we don't – I don't know. I still feel like strategists are (laughs) Sorry to offend (laughs) any superstar strategists out there. It's not me. It's okay. (laughs) We've got a few superstar strategists. There are quite a few people in the industry, across the advertising industry at the moment, who are saying that the media agency model is dead because mm. with technology, it's tech's basically going to be able to do what media agencies are offering clients. Mm. What do you make of this statement? I think you could look back over history and say the same about we could say that about a lot of business, but you could particularly say that about our business over time. You could have said that about the birth of digital. Mm. Um, I think it's with anything, there's always opportunity and a threat and it's kind of how you spin it and how you embrace it. Um, I still think, I think technology is, is definitely a shift in how we will execute and deliver media and there's no, no questions and we're seeing that. 
Um, I still think there's going to be a need to stitch it together, to think about the ecosystems, to think about how that designs in with consumer journeys. Uh, and I don't know, or I'm not seeing currently that that exists in its entirety in any other single business. So I look, I, I think you've got to be wary and you've got to le- lean on the side of paranoia to ensure that you're evolving. But I, don't, I feel like, if anything, there's more opportunity in our business than there has ever been. And if we embrace the right capability and the right investments in the right technology, it will be okay. Um, so let's move the conversation away from media agencies a little bit. Um, and I want to ask you, as a female CEO, are you sick of being asked about gender diversity? <laughs> I probably was more sick of it a while ago. I think I've kind of gone the other way now and gone... The fact that we're having the conversation is a good thing. And I think at the beginning you sort of think, oh, are they only, is that all I've got? <laughs> is that the yeah. only thing I know about? <laughs> um, but the more I think it's talked about and the more you're having the discussion, the better it is. So I've, I've got an over myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing that's interesting for me as well, you know, I've only been at Mumbrella for two years, but gender diversity is something that, you know, we're obviously really um, aware of. But for me, it's it's now sort of moving that dial to cultural diversity too. Like yeah. I feel like that hasn't it's had changed. as much attention, but now we're sort of starting to think about, okay, we, we need more than just white men and women uh, sort of in, you know, our speaker lineups and also yep. in our workplaces. Wait, and, and age. You know, I look at our business, our average age is 26 and I'm not 26 anymore. But I do look around and think, you know, it used to be we lost lots of women who would have children and not return. That's sort of the way it went. And now I think what's happening is you get to a certain point age-wise or career-wise and you're like, I can't, I can't keep working at this pace. So for me, age, we're losing a lot of expertise and clients are wanting more and more of that experience Um so, yeah, I think age is the other conversation that we should be having a bit more broadly. Do you think then that's an issue with overwork within agencies and, and what can you really do about that? Everyone's like the pace of agencies is, mm. is too much, but why does that have to be the case? Do you like asking double questions? <laughs> <laughs> the first part of the question is what can we do about it? I think the, the it generally stems from unsustainable business. So you're either taking on clients at low margin that you're trying to manage or pitching, which puts a huge amount of pressure mm. on a business, or very busy clients that are adding a lot of pressure. I think that's okay because that comes and goes. Mm-hmm. I think back to the sustainable bit, if you are paid for the service you're delivering, the people who work on your business, you should be able to resource it at the right level. So uh, there'll be ebbs and flows in that, but it shouldn't be a constant. Um, I think it's one of the reasons we lose people. I think there's also a perception that it's a young person's industry. And mm. I don't think you see that as much on the creative side. There seems to be a bit more uh, respect for the seasoned people. But definitely from a media point of view, you don't see that many people over 45, 50 sitting in an agency, which I think is something we should be looking at. And, we're, yeah, it's something we're, we're looking at. We're doing quite a bit of work around sort of the career for life rather than a career to your 40. And you sort of just mentioned pitching them, which is something that I find fascinating because I just think... Well, come and do one. You <laughs> That's a lot so of work. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you as an agency, I mean, you've just said that it takes a lot of resources and time and effort. How do you as an agency choose what business you pitch for? Mm. There's no simple answer. I think 
because there's multiple pressures. So you have an existing client that may go up for pitch, that happens. Um, you may have a global piece of business that you have to pitch on. It's hard to say no to your global network mm. if they're all relying on you. Uh, for us, where it is in our kind of domain of a decision, it'll come down to a couple of things. It'll come down to, you know, the first is, are we conflicted out? It's probably our first question. Do we have any conflicts? How would we manage that? Um, if we don't have any conflicts, it's then, have we got the capability to do this well? Um and the capacity and then we make a call we walk away from it I've walked away from probably five or six pitches in the last three weeks where it's just the team are exhausted we've got a lot of existing client work going on and I can see it's not going to be the right thing or on some of them I don't think we've got a great chance because we're probably not exactly what they're looking for so there's a few lenses that you take on it um, I also have a bit of a belief that the team have to really want to do it because mm. you feel it when they're not, their heart's not in it. It's like anything. So I've had a couple that I would have walked away from because I'm done and exhausted and they've <laughs> gone, no, we really want to do this, Ames, let us go. And that's good too, you know. If they're up for it, I go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit of what's kind of mission critical and we, we have to be in and what are the things that, global will yell at us if we don't participate and then what are we up for as a business and you know we'll also I mean when we won Coles we stopped pitching out of Melbourne for 12 months it was part of our commitment to the business is where we don't want indigestion let's just focus on what we've got and that's that's something we also do. I think retained clients as well that we've seen an interesting shift this year especially in some of the the big holding companies but we've also seen sort of the rise of these bespoke agency models, which you have one people that say they're great and they're really going to work. And then you have, you know, on the other hand, people that say you just can't always have the best talent in sort of one holding yeah. group. What, what's your view of, of bespoke models to service clients? I think it depends on the why like is it that the client's looking for something specific are they wanting to bring multiple services together that's impossible to get from a single business it's not something we lean towards where you know we're we're very much bring bring big businesses to the heart of our agency and give them access and cross-pollinate those learnings and move people when they're tired and that's much more our philosophy but it doesn't I think bespoke agency structures are sometimes required because it's the only way you'll get the client outcome that's needed. It's just it hasn't been historically how we've lent in. And we've spoken a lot as well about sort of the challenges that media agencies have faced. What do you think the opportunities are at the moment and what are the opportunities or what are media agencies looking for in the future? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I think there's quite a few. Like if I look at where we're at from a data and technology point of view, I think clients are looking for someone to help them navigate what the right tech solution for them is Mm. Um, not necessarily for us always to build it because that's not always the right thing or for us to implement it sometimes they do that themselves but they're looking for a partner to help them navigate that and to have a I guess a more neutral view on what that outcome could or should be Um, we're seeing I mean, for us, one of the big focus areas that we've 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 really been trying to bring together is more around um, content and and I guess content solutions. And we've developed quite a big team who are focused on using data to inform content ideas, uh, be it social, be it sponsorship, be it um, more dynamically based creative. And that's 
grown a lot for us over the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, and then our sort of Analect consulting business, which is very much around how do you get a, a client from a very traditional approach to data marketing through to more precision-based marketing. We're doing a lot of work in that space. It's There's so many opportunities. It's more figuring out what you focus on. So I think for us, the big focus has been on the sort of content creation and the um, data and technology strategy space over the last sort of 12 months. Okay, sadly, I think that's actually all we've got time for. That went by very fast. <laughs> it did, it was a um, quick 20 minutes. Thank you very much for joining very us, welcome. Amy. Thank you for having me. And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping. Thanks for supporting the Mumbrella Cast since we brought it back. If you haven't had a chance yet, we'd love it if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And a big shout out from me to JojoJess6622 who offered the following review on iTunes. Great, even though Tim's utterly full of himself. Five stars. Well, as long as they gave us five stars. But also this week, we've released the shortlist for the Mumbrella Next Awards which will recognise and celebrate those who have joined the media marketing and advertising industry within the last 10 years. The awards, along with Mumbrella's 10th birthday celebrations, will be held in Sydney on the 6th of December and will also be attended by the 100-strong jury of CMOs, CEOs, agency bigwigs and industry game changers. So if you're a finalist, a friend of a finalist, want to wish us a happy 10th birthday or you just want to come along and network and celebrate with the best of the best, then head to mumbrella.com.au slash next awards to secure your ticket. And that's all for the Mumbrella cast for this week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim.